0: privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah.
2: Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 172 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Colin Blundstone from The Zombies, I want to remind you about all of the great Mistress Carrie gear you can find in the store at MistressCarrie.com. Including the new three-quarter sleeve retro 70s jerseys that come with black sleeves or purple with the Mistress Carrie Flames logo on the front. But you'll find tank tops, t-shirts, beanies, hoodies, pint glasses, shot glasses, 7-in-1 bartender tools, and even a waist bag that'll get into all sporting events and concerts. Just click the shop at MistressCarrie.com. My guest this week is Colin Blundstone. He's the lead singer of The Zombies and an accomplished solo artist. The Zombies released a new album called Different Game earlier this year. And when I talked to Colin, he was getting ready for another U.S. tour. The Zombies got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as part of the class of 2019 and are the subject of a new documentary called Hung Up on a Dream that's getting ready to premiere In the United States, I caught up with Colin just outside of London while he was home getting ready to go on the road to talk about the band's new album, his hometown, what it was like to come up behind the Beatles in the 60s, recording at Abbey Road Studios, the new documentary, the fact that they're going to be playing the week of Halloween near Salem, Massachusetts, releasing music on vinyl protecting his voice, and so much more. The Zombies will be at the Cabot Theater in Beverly, Massachusetts on October 26th. I put the link to get tickets in the show notes of this episode. Colin Blunstone is rock royalty, and I am so excited that he agreed to be on the show. So, allow me to introduce you to Colin Blunstone from The Zombies. Colin, thank you for coming on the show. Oh my God, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Carrie. It's great to see you. Great to talk to you. And how are you?
2: I'm really good. I'm better now that you're on the show.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: And I appreciate you being on time. Rock stars a lot of the time are late and you're not. So I appreciate that.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I could make it on time. Actually, I was out this afternoon and I got caught in traffic, so I was panicking a bit by the time I actually got back home, which is where I am now. Um, I was panicking, but luckily I got to just about on time.
2: Um, the first question I always ask is, where are you? Because bands tour so much, half the time they don't even know where they are.
1: Well, uh, when we're on tour, I don't know. I know the first date and I know the last date. But the stuff in between, I just follow people. If they go to the wrong place, I would go with them. But <laughs> right now, anyway, I'm at home. And it's I'm in south, sort of southwest London, just outside of London. Southwest, 25 miles, something like that. It's quite countryfied around here. And uh, it's, it's very nice. This is home.
2: You have not strayed far from home in your entire career because didn't the band start right outside of London too?
1: It did, but it started northwest, uh, about twenty five miles northwest of London, uh, in a a little. It's actually a city, but it's not very big. Um, called Saint Albans. It, in In Roman times, it was a very important part of the UK. I think it was the capital of the UK for a short while in Roman times. But that's that's a bit before my t- even. That's a bit before my time. Um, and then, uh, you know, I moved into central London. A lot of young guys do that. And uh, had two or three places in central London. And then gradually, as I got older, instead of going back to where I came from, the north, I've, I seem to have ended up out here in southwest. And it, it is, it's is—it's really nice here. its It's lovely.
2: A lot of rock stars crave a little bit of country quiet life because when yeah. you're working, it's so crazy because you're on the road all the time.
1: Well, that's right. And, you know, the zombies are uh, a band that works a lot. And usually we do three tours of America. And then on top of that, we would possibly do a a UK tour or a European tour as well. So it means we're away a lot of the time. But I think we've got to the point now, we've got a sort of an understanding that we're just going to cut. We're not going to in any way stop, but we're just going to cut it back a little bit because we, we are away from home a lot of the time. So I think next year we'll probably do sort of two tours of the States and, uh, you know, nothing's in stone. I know we're doing one tour of the UK, but I think we'll just slow down a little bit.
2: Is it weird for you when people like me say, Oh my God, like I grew up listening to you. You're the soundtrack to my childhood because I remember being a little kid and my parents playing the zombies loud at home, which is probably part of the reason I ended up the way that I did. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> um, but, well, your first question, I mean, sometimes it is a little bit strange because um, a lot of the guys, you know, the the original zombies, they were guys I grew up with, so I don't think of them. As a rock band i just think of them as my childhood friends really and that includes rod argent who's the keyboard player in the current incarnation of the zombies we we met when we were 15 and we've worked off and on since then and we're we're both 78 now we're only seven uh, 10 10 days apart he's june the 14th and i'm june the 24th um so i've worked with him off and on all my life it, it is a little, it is a little bit strange when people say that song,
0: that song, yeah, whoa.
1: And um, but it's nice. I mean, I understand it because I do the same thing myself. If I meet someone who's sung a song that's very important to me, I I have to try and hold my enthusiasm back because I want to know all about them and I want to know all about the song and where it was recorded, who wrote it, everything. So I, I do, I understand it because I'm exactly the same.
2: The zombies got together in 1961 and and there's so much looking back at the 60s as being this this decade of of amazing music, counterculture. There have been countless movies and documentaries all about it. But when you go back and look at the music specifically. The amount of music and the artists that came out of that decade And the staying power, so many of those bands and artists are still touring, making music. First of all, how did you get out of the 60s alive? And second of all, it was obviously good for your health because you guys all look great and you still sound great.
1: Well, I think we were probably helped in the 60s by the fact that we never earned any money. I sort of have a backhanded way of looking at it. We never earned any money, so we couldn't really indulge in any excesses because um, I was pretty broke the whole time. <laughs> and a lot of – I know it's bizarre, but I think a lot of 60s bands were in the same boat. You know, not not everyone, but a lot of them were in the same boat where we didn't really earn that much money, Um So that, in a way, I think that kind of helped, but it was an exciting time. I mean, the whole thing, as far as from the UK's point of view, the whole thing kicked off with the Beatles. People should never forget that the Beatles started this whole, of course, the British invasion, which people talk about a lot in America. Strangely enough, they don't talk about it so much in the UK because culturally we invaded you and so they, they don't really <laughs> More think than about once. it once <laughs> yes i know well we you know it, it was a, a much gentler invasion this time <laughs> um but of course it was all triggered by the beatles and they opened the door for everybody no one was particularly interested in british bands before the beatles but after that of course they were and our first record we were 18 years old when we recorded our first record. She's not there. And it, I think it was released in the autumn of 64. In the UK, it was released in July, a little bit later in America. And it was number one in Cashbox, Christmas 1964, when we arrived to do the Murray the K show in the, at the Brooklyn Fox, alongside uh, the Shirelles, the Shangri-Las, Benny King, Chuck Jackson, Dionne Warwick, about fourteen, Patty Labelle, wonderful artists, and you see the strange thing is, just a few months before that, we were a local amateur band, and it seemed overnight we had this completely different career and lifestyle. But when you're young, you you tend to just accept it. You know, I think we took it pretty much day by day. We thought, oh, you know. Last month, we were playing in a little gig two miles away from where we live. This month, we're playing in New York. And uh, we just kind of accepted it and and took it day by day. It's the only way to do it, really. If you stop to think about it, you go nuts.
2: I tell people all the time that the greatest gift my mom gave me was the love of the Beatles because she loved them so much and was such a music fan that it became the soundtrack to my life. And <clears throat> I feel like there are two musical phases of your upbringing. There's the music you get exposed to, kind of unwillingly as a kid. And then there's a point in your uh, in your adolescence where you discover music on your own. So what was the music you grew up listening to that is the soundtrack to your childhood And then what was the first song or artist that you said, no, 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 hold on. I like this.
1: Well, let me answer your question in in sort of two parts. And I completely agree with you because I always think that the music that you like in your formative years, say from 15 to 25, something like that, that music stays with you for your whole life. It certainly has with me Um, when I was younger. My mother had five brothers and three sisters, and all of the brothers, my uncles, they all played instruments. So in many ways, I can remember listening to them. Often they played more than one instrument, and they were fantastic harmony singers as well. So I was very influenced by them from from a really young age. Then after, I I don't know what kind of music people listened to till I guess Bill Haley changed things a bit. Was that about nineteen fifty-six? Not really for me, I'm I'm afraid. But what really changed things for me was Little Richard, um uh God I've blanked Elvis and Chuck Berry. The three for me the three greats of early rocker, all American, they were the guys that really changed it for me. Later on it would be the Everly brothers, uh, Buddy Holly. And I was a big fan of Ricky Nelson as well. Um, those were the guys that got me interested in music. And I, I went to a school where we sat in alphabetical order. We, you know, we had no choice. It was a boys' school. It's pretty strict. Sat in alphabetical order. And the guy in front of me was a guy called Paul Arnold, A, Blundstone, B. And I'd said to him many times that I had a guitar and wouldn't it be great to have a band? And he knew someone, not at our school, to so someone who lived up the road, who was called Rod Argent, who wanted to put a band together. And one day the guy sitting in front of me said, do you want to join a band? And I talked about it so many times. I didn't have any wriggle room because I wasn't sure I had time to be in a band. That's the honest truth. <laughs> I didn't know if I had time. I was in the rugby team, basketball team. I did athletics for the school. I was a sports nut, but I'd said it so many times. I, I had to go along to this rehearsal and, you know, essentially, that band, one guy left, but that was the Zombies, all just young kids in school in this town called St. Albans. Um, it was, it's, it's so much by chance. If we hadn't been sitting in alphabetical order, I wouldn't have been included in the band. And I went along as a rhythm guitarist because I could play a little bit of guitar and I still play a little bit of guitar. And Rod Argent was going to be the lead singer. And we had a coffee break halfway through. I didn't know Rod. I'd never met him before. And he played Nut Rocker by B Bumble and the Stingers, which is quite a complicated piece. And he was so much more sophisticated than us. And I said, Rod, or whoever you are, I only (laughs) just met him, whoever you are, um, you should be playing keyboards in this band. And he said, no, it's a rock band. We want all guitars. And you, you wouldn't think about playing keyboards. And then he just heard me sing a bit at the end of the rehearsal, putting my guitar away. I started singing a little bit, and he said, I must have done something right, because he said, if you'll be the lead singer, I'll be the keyboard player. And essentially,
2: that was The Zombies. It's unbelievable, and does not surprise me at all that you cite Little Richard, Chuck Berry, as these early influences. It comes up all the time on the show, this ping-pong ball of rock and roll that gets lobbed across the ocean. And it seems, it seems that every generation lobs it back again in the way that the UK and America have kind of taken those early era days of rock and roll and just smashed it back and forth over the decades. Yeah. It's amazing. It's absolutely
1: true. Absolutely true. I'm sure all people who were in those early bands... Uh, in the mid-60s, what, their idols will have all been American. Without exception, they will have all been American. And I used to feel quite guilty when we came over. And at one point, the Zombies were called the Zombies R&B when we were still a local band, because that's what we played, R&B. And uh, so we still played a few R&B classics when we came over. And, of course, the audiences were very enthusiastic in the 60s, especially if you had a big hit record. And I felt like, I honestly felt like I wanted to stop the show and say, this is your music. I feel really guilty. We're playing your music. It might have been through a British-UK filter, but it, it, they were American classics. But, but in a way, I think we helped a lot of those early blues guys and rhythm and blues guys get recognition. Well, I'd like to think so. That might sound a little bit um, over the top, but I'd like to think that the British bands really helped some of those early blues guys um, get recognition because to some degree, I think they've been forgotten in America.
2: Uh, One of the other things that seemed to be um, a contribution was uh, technological experimentation. The Beatles famous for it at Abbey Road Studios. And when you go and listen to those early zombie records, you're whispering through my brain back and forth There was a lot of, hey, what can we do with this new technology? Which, through today's lenses, that equipment was so remedial. But what you guys were able to do with it is unreal.
1: Well, it was very different. I mean, when we started, along with every other band, we were recording on four tracks. So essentially, you're pretty much recording absolutely live. Strangely enough, it's gone full circle. And we recorded our last two albums live including the vocals sometimes we might patch a little bit up but essentially that we're recording live just because we think there's an extra energy in the studio if we're all there together because a lot of bands uh, record remotely you know they'll record in their own studios and they're kind of phone it in um but we quite like to record at the same time when we started yeah it was four track recording but when we record, recorded uh, Odyssey and Oracle it was our last album and uh, from that came Time of the Season that was recorded in 1967 and we followed the Beatles they just uh, finished Sgt Pepper and we, fin- we followed them into Abbey Road mostly they were in Studio 2 but they did record in Studio 3 as well and we were in Studio 3 when we went in there we were picking up percussion instruments off the ground. We were big Beatles fans. We were picking up percussion instruments off the ground we this was left there by the Beatles. Wow. <laughs> and um, the, why I'm saying this is because John Lennon had heard uh, Pet Sounds and he knew that the Beach Boys had recorded on an eight-track machine. And he said to Abbey Road, we want eight-tracks. And they said there isn't an eight-track machine in the country. But overnight, they stayed up all night. John Lennon went home. And they stayed up all night. That's that's how I understand the story. Anyway, the Abbey Road uh, boffins stayed up all night, and they managed to get two four-track machines to play together. And as they did that, they lost one track. So it meant the Beatles were recording on seven tracks. And because of that advance for Sergeant Pepper, we got exactly the same thing when we recorded Odyssey and Oracle. We were recording on seven tracks which was unheard of in the uk at that time and it allowed us to add vocal harmonies and percussion instruments that we could never have done normally so um, it, that was a, a wonderful sort of te- technical uh, jump ahead if you like as we followed the beach boys but now that you can record on as many tracks as you like it's everything's changed
2: I am embarrassed to say that I have been one of those people that dodged oncoming traffic to take pictures outside of that studio in the crosswalk.
1: (laughs) I know. Every time I go down there, I used to live quite close to that, maybe two miles away from Abbey Road. And you'd see people doing exactly that. I'm sure. I was one of those
2: idiots. That was me. (laughs)
1: Well, why not? Why not? I've probably done it myself. I can't remember doing it recently, but I've probably done it myself. Nothing wrong with that.
2: There is a great documentary about the studio called If These Walls Could Sing that was done recently by Paul McCartney's daughter about that legendary studio. And I love like rock music documentaries. I was binging a lot of them during COVID. And now there's one coming out about you guys.
1: That's right. It's uh, it's called uh, "Hung Up on a Dream," and it's directed by Robert Schwartzman, and he he's a wonderful director, and he always always thought there was a a real story to get his teeth into on the zombies. And he's done a great job. I think it's about an hour and a half long. We were a little worried that there wasn't enough uh, original uh, record uh, video from the sixties. People didn't they didn't have. Uh, uh cell phones in those days we, we call them mobile phones here for some reason um and so there wasn't as much video um from those days as there are now but he's put together a really interesting documentary it it was uh first shown at south by southwest in austin in texas earlier this year and we're coming over to do the woodstock film festival Rod Argent and myself are going to do a Q&A afterwards. I think we're going to play some songs just the two of us afterwards as well. And um and then we start a US tour after that. Um so it's going to be a fairly full month coming up. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting documentary. I I I've seen it 2 or 3 times myself and and really enjoyed it.
2: Is it weird to watch your life story told by <laughs> someone else in a movie?
1: It's very weird. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, I I was glad that they'd done such a great job on it because it's a it's a sophisticated, professional, you know, well put together piece. But I can't say it was altogether comfortable watching your story on the screen. A a little bit strange, a little bit strange.
2: Uh, You talk about the tour. You're going to be in Beverly, Massachusetts at the Cabot Theatre coming up on October 26th. And it's perfect timing because Beverly is right next to Salem.
1: Located, oh, right.
2: And it's right yes. before Halloween. And Absolutely. the marquee's is going to say the zombies outside. It's going to yes. get weird.
1: It could do, couldn't it? Yes, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I just have to explain to people that we're not real zombies, just in <laughs> case they get a bit carried away. I, do, I sometimes say the opposite. If people start getting tricky with me, I'll say, just remember, I'm a zombie. So, you know, don't get too fresh, kid. (laughs) Yeah, I'll point out we're not real zombies, just in case anybody gets upset.
2: There's probably going to be a lot of people in costumes at the show.
1: Oh, (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. I'm glad you warned me. Yeah.
2: Well, it's my favorite day of the year. Look at me. Halloween is my day. And Salem And that whole area is the place. I hope you guys have a day off before or after that show in Beverly because you guys yes. need to go sightseeing, go wander around Salem that week before Halloween. It is a blast.
1: Will it be safe?
2: I mean, you know, someone's <laughs> probably going to jump out of the bushes and scare you, but it's so much fun.
1: <laughs> okay, i look forward to that.
2: It's so much fun. Well... One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because I don't think anybody would have predicted in the digital age that it would be back, is vinyl's resurgence. Now, you came up in the original era of vinyl, releasing new music now, having to go back and release it on vinyl. Did you ever think that vinyl was going to come back? And are you a vinyl purist? Are you happy that it's back?
1: Uh, yeah, I am. I do like vinyl. I mean, I'm, I'm not an authority really on on recording techniques and and you know the advantages of vinyl over over digital but I prefer uh, vinyl I think it's it's a warmer sound it's a more attractive sound in fact it's sort of more than that because I think a lot of recording now is so harsh I find it hard to listen to a lot of contemporary music just because of the way it's recorded but I mean it's just what I'm used to really but I didn't expect it to come back but there's so much. I didn't expect the zombies to be playing in 2023 (laughs) not in my wildest dreams did i expect that and it just goes to show you never can tell It's particularly true of the music business people will often sit you down managers agents anybody will sit you down and tell you what's going to happen and if you do this this will be successful they don't know this is a little secret i'll tell you they don't, they haven't got a clue. But don't, <laughs> don't, don't tell them that because it's their moment. You know, they like to tell you all this stuff. So, you know, listen with a attentive smile on your face, but they don't really know. And we're the living proof of it.
2: There's a lot of weirdness going on, right? You talk about it, it's strange still being on the road and releasing music this long into your career. Um, yeah. Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr are on Dolly Parton's rock album. And the Rolling Stones just announced a new record as well. So that era, those artists, absolute staying power, you guys included.
1: I know. I think uh, there's something about people from that era. And I just kind of, you know, it becomes a way of life. That's the thing. That you write songs and then you record them and then you go out and you tour. And that's, your life is built around that pattern. And so... You don't think of, what am I doing at 78 going out and touring? That's that's just what my life is and, and all these other guys that you're mentioning. You know, it is. It's just a way of life and it becomes imprinted on your, on your being. And um, so you don't question it at all. You just do it.
2: Ringo and Paul are on Dolly's rock album because she promised to make one because she got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is something that happened to the zombies in 2019. And yes. as we get ready for the induction of the class of 2023, there's always the arguments about who should get in and who shouldn't. Does it mean anything? Does it not? As far as a rock and roll hall of fame induction, what did it mean to you?
1: I, I Me personally, I mean, everybody sees this differently. I mean, no system's perfect, but um, I... I was absolutely thrilled that we got inducted into the Rock and Roll because Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it means that people have, to some extent, listened to what we've done and they've recognised its worth and thought that you know what we've done has got some kind of value. And remembering that we broke up before our last record, so our last hit record, so when Time of the Season was number one in Cashbox, there was no zombies. So we we kind of we finished on a bit of a down really we we felt that we were unsuccessful it's it's open to question whether we were or not because we were just thinking about the uk charts and the us charts but around the world we always had a hit record somewhere it's just that at that time we didn't know there was no internet so we didn't know but we we felt we were unsuccessful and that's why we finished so to to get recognition, you know, later in life, it, I think it was fabulous for me personally. And the actual day of the induction was magical. There were so many wonderful people on that show in 2019. Um, Stevie Nicks and uh, Janet Jackson, The Cure, uh, Def Leppard, uh, uh, Roxy Music, it, um, Radiohead. Just fabulous people to be part of that show. It was, it was really magical. I wouldn't have missed it for the world.
2: The craft of songwriting is something that gets brought up all the time. And you talk about finding out the impact that your music has around the world. The actual sitting down and creating a song out of nothing, for a music lover that does not have that ability, it fascinates me. And so I always ask this songwriting question to songwriters on the show because I, I'm so curious of what you think is great songwriting. So this isn't a favorite song question. It's definitely a craft question. Is there a song that you think is so brilliantly crafted from any artist of any genre that you covet it and wish you wrote it? But tell me why you think it's a brilliant example of songwriting.
1: I think God only knows is a is a wonderful song. It's very musical. Um, the lyric has depth. Um, it tells a story. It gets to the point very quickly. Uh, it's memorable. It's it's just a wonderful song on all levels. So I, I think and and. Recently, we toured with uh, Brian Wilson, and he's a fabulous band. They're really, really great. Again, and they asked longevity
2: me to- of career.
1: I know, I know, and they asked me to sing. God only knows. So on a couple of occasions, I got up there and sang it. And so I know from firsthand experience. And I sang it with Brian Wilson sitting right next to me at the piano.
2: No pressure. I, I know
1: from. Pardon. No, no pr- pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> God, it was. It was a. <laughs> It was a bit testing, I must admit, um, but it was wonderful. And, and pro- I know you said this is not a favourite song question, but I always think about um, a Sting song called Fragile, because musically, very, very strong. But I love the sentiment of the lyric. It says so much in so few words. Life is fragile, and it should be treasured. And um, it, it says so much, and, and I've always thought of that as a wonderful song. There's "Fragile" by Sting, and there's a great version by Sting, a live version by uh, CV Wonder as well, which is well worth a listen.
2: I have to ask you because I use my voice so much, and your voice is so iconic. How do you take care of it? Because doing what I do, it's all about talking, and every singer yeah. I talk to says talking's the worst thing for your voice. So what do you do after all these years to protect your iconic voice?
1: Well, I would say one thing, I try not to do interviews uh, too close to a tour. You know, I mean, I'm not a great fan of doing interviews when we're on the road. just as you as you just mentioned that but in ge- a lot of it is for me is common sense i've realized the importance of staying hydrated when you're on the road i when i was a kid i never thought about things like that about getting water inside yourself so you've got th- this is my idea and it's also for an older performer but um make sure you drink plenty of water make sure you're you're on, you have a good diet and you need Plenty of sleep, so that after the show, <laughs> when you're young, after the show, everybody wants to know where the party is. When you're a, a more seasoned performer, there's a there's a rush to get back to the hotel to get to bed because you want to get the sleep because you're you're playing the next night. So I think of all those as just kind of common sense really, especially as you get into the autumn of your career. But the other thing I started with a uh, with a singing coach probably 20 years ago now and he just taught me a little bit about singing technique I had no idea about I just sang with whatever I was born with and he taught me a little bit about singing technique and he gave me a set of exercises about 30 minutes of exercises and on the road I do those every day and I'll do them once before sound check and I find they strengthen my voice make it more accurate and also I feel Put it another way, it kind of wakes my voice up. So if I've got a bit of a husky voice, it really helps. And, and all of these exercises go to a top C, and you would think that singing up there would be a strain on your voice, but somehow it, it brings my voice out. Um, and so I do it before sound check, and then I do it again before the show. So I will have done exercises for an hour before the show starts on any show when we're on tour when we're not on tour i, I would probably do it five times a week i, I think i told you I've, I've just been out in the car this afternoon i i was singing my exercises in the car <laughs> it's a bit different if you stop at traffic lights and you're going for that top c it's a little bit embarrassing if the, the guy next door looks across while while you're doing it you know but You just have to plow on.
2: Well, Colin, you can actually sing. I can't. So it's always embarrassing when I'm sitting in the car singing and somebody pulls up next to me (laughs) because it always sounds terrible. I'm embarrassed to sing by myself in the shower.
1: Listen, the important thing is to sing. It doesn't matter whether you consider it's good or not, because singing is is a, a wonderful release. It's just it's a great thing to do. So. Don't worry about how you, and you might be being really self-critical. You might be fantastic. Um, so I, don't worry about what it sounds like. I'm not. Just
2: <laughs> In my head, with my raspy voice, I sound like the aforementioned Stevie Nicks, but I do not. <laughs> Trust me.
1: Well, keep practicing. You'll get there.
2: I apologize for this last question. I blame Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath. Um I talked to him and uh, we got on this tangent about his love of animals and animal advocacy. And Geezer Butler told me about all the pets that he has, which floored me that he's got 13 cats and five dogs. And I asked him, how do you keep track and come up with names for all of these animals? And Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath told me he names them all after gangster rappers, him and his wife, Gloria, fell out of my chair laughing and now I call it the geezer butler question. And I have to ask everyone that comes on the show, do you have pets and what do you call them? And if you think it's a ridiculous question, blame geezer.
1: Okay. No, I don't think it's a ridiculous question. I don't right now. We haven't got pets, but usually it would be cats. Um, We've had three in the last few years that, you know, they, they, They lived long and lovely lives, but they're no longer with us. I think I'd be a little reluctant to have another one at the moment because I'm away so much of the time. Um, But definitely when, you know, I can imagine in the next three or four years, four or five years, uh, I'll be touring a lot less. And I would love to have animals I'm, I'm quite a dog person really but you definitely need to be home for dogs but it's it's something i look forward to when um you know when we're touring a, uh, a lot less frequently i i would love to explore that that part of life of having a couple at least a couple of dogs um, but at the moment we did have a visiting cap we often have visitors to this house um And sadly, the the last one, he just passed away about a couple of weeks ago. But we feed, we have foxes in the garden. So, and a lot of people, this is a bit of a hot topic. A lot of people don't like this, but we feed them and they're lovely. (laughs) And so because we feed them, they don't go in anybody's dustbins and they don't cause any problems. They're so fat when they leave here. They haven't got the energy to (laughs) turn dustbins over or anything. They're, They're the best fed foxes in the world. And they come at um, nine o'clock every night.
2: I think you're the first person that's been on the show that has pet wild foxes in the yard.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I claim them to be pets, but I, you know, they might question that. I like to think of them as pets, but I don't think they probably consider their pets. If but, you can um,
2: feed them on a clock and you know it's nine o'clock when they show up in the yard, they're pets.
1: Yes, well, they are. They've got they've got fantastic sense of time. I'm always expecting a note through the door of complaint if I'm a bit late because they're there for sure at nine o'clock. Uh, so far, they haven't complained. I'm glad to say.
2: The documentary about the zombies is called "Hung Up on a Dream." The new album that came out earlier this year is called "Different Game." You guys out on the road in Beverly at the Cabot Theater on October 26th in time for Halloween. I, yes, I can't yes. wait to see the show because I'm in and around that area at that time of year every year. So I want to come and see you guys because I've never seen you live and I want to be able to say that I've seen the zombies.
1: Brilliant. Well, we'll do come and we'll have a chat and we can compare notes about witches and Halloween and everything.
2: look I'll, if you I'm looking for If you guys are off, I'll take you on a tour of Salem myself. It's awesome.
1: All right. And I'll teach you a few zombie spells and exactly (laughs) what our powers are. And uh, yeah, we can do a trade.
2: That would be fantastic. It was so nice to meet you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Carrie. It's been a pleasure. really enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: There he is, Colin Blundstone from The Zombies. Their new album, Different Game, is available everywhere, and the new documentary will be out later this year called Hung Up on a Dream. You can see The Zombies at the Cabot Theater in Beverly, Massachusetts on October 26th. Check the link in the show notes of this episode to get tickets. While you're there, you'll also find all the links to find Colin Blundstone online, all of The Zombies links online, you'll find the Mistress Carrie links and the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast that features all of my guest music and all the songs and artists that we talked about in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday, you get the sit rep that gives you all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates in around five minutes. You can watch my weekly streaming video show, Cocktails in the War Room, on my official Facebook page every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern. And you can always find me on the radio. Get the details on all that and more at mistresscarry.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.